Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we give you a peek inside the Sifted newsroom and talk about some of the best stories that our journalists have been working on in the week. So we had a week off of the normal pod, which was to make space for a new show format where we interview big names in the European tech scene. The first episode we did in this new format was with investor Carolina Brasciato, who's been writing checks at Atomico, SoftBank Vision Fund, and now at EQG Growth. So definitely have a listen to that. I actually worked with Carolina at Atomico. And despite having met her many times and talked to her many times, I actually learned a new funny story about her and how she tried to get into the Deliveroo deal. So it was it's definitely worth a listen. But this week, we're back to the news, and we're going to be hearing about what Britain's third prime minister in as many months will mean for the country's tech community. And we're going to be looking at some very depressing data on the gender pay gap at European tech companies. But we are going to hear about some good, maybe more optimistic news, including about a company that's landed £10 million to develop a CBD tampon product and put some PCR testing machines to good use again. And we'll be joined by our climate tech reporter, Freya Pratty, who'll be giving us an update on what's been going on in that sector this week, because there has been a lot of news. Climate tech is hot stuff at the moment. And we're going to speak to Martin Bittner, who's the CEO of a UK-based AI drug discovery company, who was talking to us earlier this week about how the country has a chronic shortage of lab space, which is going to slow down the biotech sector. But we have a ton of stuff to talk about today, so we will just get straight into it. So we're starting off in the UK, this once great, great island, famed for its sensible and grown-up approach to politics. I don't, know now, who, I don't know who you're comparing it to. Has just turned into an absolute shit show. We have our third prime minister in three months, and it's been pretty much a hot mess since the scandal-ridden Boris Johnson was forced out of office to be replaced by the fairly incompetent Liz Truss, who managed to tank the economy. So now business folk are maybe slightly reassured by the arrival of Rishi Sunak, who is a former Goldman Sachs banker and hedge fund manager, whose wife happens to be an angel investor. So Eleanor and I had a bit of a look at what we think this means for tech companies and startups. What were our findings, Eleanor? Yeah, so I think the UK probably has its most startup-friendly PM ever. He did an interview with Sifted actually last year when he was chancellor, so when he was the the highest finance chief in the UK. And he talked about his ambitions to reinvigorate the UK's age of entrepreneurship through reforms to visa schemes, option schemes, and R&D credits. And then in his opening address to London Tech Week this year, he described himself as a proud tech geek and promised tax breaks for companies doing R&D. He's also routinely seen at tech events like Founders Forum, and he told Sifted last year when we interviewed him that he wants the government to do things that scale with impact. And if that is not a startup-y way to phrase things, I don't know what is. 
He also studied at Stanford for a while. We thought the fact that he was a chancellor who occasionally appeared in hoodies and sliders meant that he probably slightly got the Silicon Valley bro mentality. When, when he spoke to Sifted in 2021, he said, I quote, we want to do things that are technology centric as that's how people are living their lives. So hopefully we can have that startup treasury mindset. So we are kind of interested to see whether he brings that into number 10 and whether he has more success doing that than Dominic Cummings, another sort of previous big name in UK politics and advisor to Boris Johnson. He was also quite pro the kind of move fast, test things out, startup mentality, but famously did not end so well for Dominic Cummings. So yeah, let's see how Rishi gets on with this. I guess the other thing that's interesting is that he has kind of dabbled in VC a bit during his time in government. Yeah, so during the pandemic in May 2020, he launched the Future Fund, which was this big support package for high growth businesses, which basically saw the UK government co-invest with VCs into businesses that were affected by COVID. Originally, the UK government was going to commit £500 million. It ended up committing £1.14 billion. So invested these via convertible loans, which meant that when the companies went on to raise a subsequent round of funding, those loans would convert into equity. And I actually got an email from the British Business Bank that sort of administered the scheme this morning. And they said that 464 of the 1,190 companies that this, you know, kind of got these loans, they have now converted into equity. So the British government is now kind of a shareholder in 464 of these businesses. Many of them are startups. And just 67 businesses have gone into administration of all of the ones that it originally gave convertible loans to, which I think is not, not so bad so far. I mean, there's a lot that, you know, still in the balance. But, you know, he's, 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 he's rolled up his sleeves and kind of got involved in actually helping startups in the past. Yeah, not terrible. So I guess with um, Rishi now in power, there is a lot of potentially promising things for UK startups out there. But unfortunately, this week, we had some less positive data about the tech scene. So according to research from salary benchmarking platform figures, who looked at the gender pay gap in startups in France, UK and Germany, the UK came out the worst of the lot. Amy, tell us the findings. Yeah, so this was written by one of our reporters, Kai Nicole Schwartz, and figures looked at the median wages of startup workers at over 800 UK, French and German tech companies that had between 10 and 200 employees. So not the very, very tiniest and not really big ones. So sort of a, a normal sized uh, early stage startup. And they found that in the UK, women are paid 70p for every pound that a man earns at a startup. In Germany, ever so slightly better, women are paid 77p for every pound that a man earns. And in France, it's 84p for every pound that a man earns. And quite notably, those pay gaps are worse than the national average in each country. So startups are doing worse than businesses as a whole, which I just think is so, so disappointing because startups start with a blank slate you know they can do things from scratch they're not big bureaucratic enterprises that you know have historic problems to solve and yet they're messing up the worst yeah and i thought it was really interesting if you actually drilled down and looked at what functions were the most affected by this amy can you say a little bit more about that what was so bad yeah, so they looked at different departments as well, and the pay gap is worst in the finance and tech teams. 
at startups and there's only one department admin which has a gender pay gap sort of in women's favor so where women get paid more than men in those roles but in all the other departments they looked at so including operations marketing product even people which you sort of stereotypically think is quite you know hr quite a female department women still getting paid less than men wild i guess one reason that scale-ups often give to explain these pay gaps is that there's just a lack of women in these kind of roles, especially tech and finance roles. Earlier this year, when we talked to Revolut about their pay gap, they said that it was because they were hiring from an industry talent pool that tends to be male dominated. Yeah, but like, I think that's bollocks. And a pay consultant called Michelle Gimmer, who we spoke to, basically said it as well, because to the aforementioned point about the HR teams, there are departments that have pay gaps, even the ones where there is clearly not a problem with the, the talent pool and there are plenty of women in it. So this speaks to a more ingrained problem. I think it's also interesting what this pay gap consultant didn't know that this was a, a job, but I'm glad it exists. What she was saying about the fact that some of this you know, gender imbalance at startups can also probably be linked back to the fact that there's a huge gender imbalance at the investor level. So that would mean that investors are probably less incentivized or maybe even just less aware of the issue. If 85% of the general partners in Europe are men, as are 86% of the angels in the UK, they're probably going to be less sensitive about the issue of the gender pay gap, which has direct consequences for the companies that they invest in. Indeed. But on to perhaps some good news for people who menstruate, this week we had a story that a London-based startup called Day has raised £10 million. So it's been going for a while, it's been going since 2018, and its main product at the moment is that it sells tampons which are infused with CBD oil. That's a compound that's found in cannabis that doesn't get you high, but does have relaxing and pain-relieving qualities. But they're also saying that they're also launching the world's first tampon-based at-home vaginal microbiome screening platform. So you can test for things like vaginal infections and disruptions to the biome, and those kinds of things can increase your chances of urinary tract infections, STIs, and fertility complications. And all it takes is just a tampon-based swab. And then you send that in and then they can test it for you. And the cool thing about this is that they're using a PCR. I'm sure that we all are familiar with PCR tests after that traumatic experience that is, was the COVID pandemic. And now that people aren't taking those tests anymore, you've got all these big PCR machines that are sitting idle. And now they can actually use those to go and do tests about your vaginal biome. I'm actually super interested in this. I really want to do this. Can, yeah, can this be your, your Christmas present to me, Amy? in your secret santa coming right up oh my gosh yes uh, the other thing that sort of stood out for me from kai's interview with the founder uh, valentina milanova she talked a bit about her, the process of going out to raise money for this company and she made the point that you know just in general when you explain what the company does it makes a lot of investors feel a bit uncomfortable and she said that a lot of them just look to the ground when we mentioned menstruation or vaginal canals it puts us on the back foot from the get-go which is obviously actually a pretty serious and frustrating thing for a company like that but she said that lots of investors sort of smirked or they giggled or things like that while they were 
we're pitching men and women. And the CEO of the company, who's a woman called Lisa Rodwell, made this really good point. So I'm quoting her. If you were in an investor meeting about a cybersecurity company, you might talk about your own experience with cybersecurity, but you wouldn't talk about your experience of vaginal infections during a pitch. I mean, I just am like... If you're an investor, you are not always going to be the target customer for the things that you invest in. So you got to get comfortable with that stuff is kind of my view. But I've also recently heard so many other stories from from women who are building femtech companies about the bizarre things that they're asked in pitches. So, yeah. And we all know that gynecology is massively under-researched, under-invested in, services aren't great in many places around the world. So... The more companies that come along that can maybe help people slightly bypass long waiting lists and things um, in the health service and find some answers themselves, I think great stuff. Right, so now we're joined by Freya Pratty, our climate tech reporter, who we thought we'd invite onto the pod as there has been a whole lot of climate news this week, which is becoming quite the trend. So Freya, there were three interesting financing rounds this week. The biggest one was for H2 Green Steel, which is a Swedish company, and it secured support for 3.5 billion euros in debt financing, which it needs to build a hydrogen-powered steel plant in northern Sweden. Freya, why do we need hydrogen-powered steel plants? Yeah, so steel, the steel industry has been one of those industries that's really hard to green. You can't just electrify the process and therefore bring in renewables as you can with the car industry. Obviously, we can now make EVs. Steel is one of the so-called hard to abate industries where it's really hard to switch across to electricity and therefore renewables. Basically, because you can't get electricity up to the same temperature as you can get coal, which is what they currently use. But hydrogen is a way that they could get that temperature up and you can also produce hydrogen renewably. So this could be a way, if it works, of powering the steel industry through renewable energy. And that's important because steel production using coal accounts for around 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, according to McKinsey. But how soon could this actually happen? How soon could it get up and running? So the plant is under construction at the moment. It's in the north of Sweden. It should be up and running by 2025 onwards. And that's also when they want to use green hydrogen for the plant because there are some forms of hydrogen that aren't green. And this latest debt financing round will be really important. They said they need 5 billion to finish the plant off and they want to get two thirds through debt and a third through equity. So this is the two thirds of debt, but it's like a big chunk of the financing they'll need. And then they've raised some equity last year and they're going to try and finish it all by mid next year. And this kind of really cements Sweden, doesn't it, as a place where lots of these mega climate startups are based. There's also North Fault. Yeah, and this makes H2 Green Steel one of the highest capitalised climate projects in Europe. So for Sweden to have two of those is is a big deal. I guess uh, it's a much smaller round than 3.5 billion. But there was another interesting fundraise this week that you wrote about, Freya, Barcelona-based startup Eora raised money for its alternative meat business. Freya, tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, Aora are making plant-based chicken, beef, meatballs, things like that from a mixture of vegetables and plant-based ingredients like olive oil is a big thing for them. They raised 20 million euros and it's been a really busy month for the 
alternative meat industry. So a company in France, Gourmet, which is working on cultivated meat, which is slightly different, they raised 48 million euros. And then Hoxton Farms, which is based in the UK, also doing cultivated meat, they raised $22 million. So there's a real acceleration this month of alternative meat rounds. But what's different about Aora? So they, they're they not doing kind of lab-grown cultivated meat, which is one half of the industry. They're using existing ingredients, but have kind of new technology that can get those closer to what real meat looks like. And one of the big things for them is olive oil. So a lot of other companies are using saturated fats, which make the end product quite unhealthy. They've found a way to make olive oil look more like the fat that would be in a real animal steak. And then they mix that with like soy and vegetables. And is this something that you can buy in the supermarket? Yeah, so they're, they're currently sold in 12 markets. Spain is their biggest market. They're the market leader there. If you're in the UK, you can find it in Ocado. If you're in uh, Italy, Carrefour. And if you're in France, go check out Intermarché. <laughs> Let us know what you think. I'm, I'm picturing us having this for lunch one day in the Sifted office. <laughs> yeah, I actually got a WhatsApp yesterday from someone saying, hey, are you doing some events around Europe next year? Do you want to have a tasting area for my mycelium-based sausage? <laughs> and I was like, 100%. Hang on, I think that was actually a come on, Amy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on to our next story. This is from... Amy cuts me off. Nordic's correspondent Mimi billing but it's something that you've written about quite a lot for us so tell us about pebble which raised eight million euros this week yeah so pebble is part of the carbon capture and storage industry which is where emissions are captured at the point of source so an oil refinery will put tech on on the process that captures some of the emissions and then there's this whole industry that's set up looking at what we can do with captured carbon and pebble their idea is to combine it with water and silicate rocks and to make it into this material that can be used in place of concrete in construction. So it's interesting because it's sort of solving two problems. What we do with carbon and cement and concrete in themselves are very carbon intensive. So if it can replace that, it's sort of a, a double win. But I guess the carbon capture technology itself that creates the carbon that then Pebble is going to use to create this material, that technology itself is kind of controversial though, right? Yeah, it's really controversial. A lot of people say, this is just like attach this tech onto an oil refinery. You can make the oil industry look greener than it is. And we kind of keep going with fossil fuels when we should be putting the, the efforts that goes into carbon capture and storage into just like furthering renewables. And there's also a lot of instances where it doesn't really capture that much of the emissions. So yeah, it's controversial. But there are industries where I think it there's a big consensus that it is necessary, like steel production, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, until something like H2 green steel comes along, it's really hard to do that without without emissions. So something like carbon capture and storage is more acceptable there. But using it on oil refinery is is pretty controversial. So talking about something else kind of controversial, Freya, that you wrote about this week, tell us about climate-friendly private jets. I will admit that I definitely have spent a late night in my bed scrolling on my phone through Twitter threads about celebrities and their private jets and how much CO2 they're emitting. What's going on? 
Yeah, so I didn't realize, but private jets are the fastest growing segment of the whole aviation industry since the pandemic. Rich people with health concerns want to fly on their own is the general gist. So it's a really fast growing industry. And I just noticed like a number of emails in my inbox from people from private jet companies wanting to kind of show how green they are, which I mean, I was immediately skeptical. But the the basis is things like buying carbon credits to offset your flight or investing in sustainable aviation fuel initiatives like that but yeah it's a pretty hard argument to make so if you want to know anything more about how taylor swift might be potentially making her flights a little bit more green definitely read freya's story on private jets thank you for joining us freya thanks Now, for our last story of the day, we're joined by Martin Bittner, CEO of Octoris, which is an Oxford-based startup that automates drug discovery. He helped us with a story we published this week about a lack of lab space for biotech startups in the UK. So, Martin, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, tell us a little bit about your company and why you decided to start it in the UK, because you are originally from Germany, aren't you? <laughs> yes, that is very true. First of all, wonderful, wonderful to be here. Very glad kind of we can have this conversation. Maybe briefly, as you pointed out, I am from Germany originally. I qualified as a clinician, but then I came to the UK for my PhD. So I came to the UK, did my PhD, and while doing basic cancer drug discovery, very early stage research, I then realized that the way in which we perform research, the way in which we think about research, really has not evolved in a very long time. And that was the starting point to think about how could we do this differently? How can we use technology, which has transformed so many other industries? Now can we use that technology to help us within drug discovery? So that was the starting point to think about what could we do differently? What could we do better? And that then led to the creation of Arcturus, together with my co-founder, who's a chemist by background. And the company that we've built over the past four years uses a combination of wet lab automation and machine learning. Wet lab automation means instead of having human scientists perform all of these experiments manually over long periods of time, we use robotics to run a very, a very large number of experiments across a broad range of different, different scientific disciplines to help us gather data in cell biology, molecular biology, biochemistry. And we then use the machine learning to help us navigate through that data and decide which molecules would be worth synthesizing, looking further into and prioritizing further study. Very cool. But the big challenge is around, or one of the big challenges is around the labs, right? Tell us what's the what's the conundrum facing startups like uh, yours at the moment? Hmm. In general, there is a immense scarcity when it comes to lab space. Wet lab space is in very short supply across the entire UK, but especially in what is known as the Golden Triangle, not to be confused with the one in Southeast Asia. So the one that we have in the UK is between Oxford, London, and Cambridge. And within that triangle, you find the majority of biotech and pharma companies in this country. And even large corporations find it very difficult to find adequate lab space. But of course, the situation is even worse for smaller companies. Yeah, we, we got some data from an estate agent called Bidwells, which uh, specializes in labs. And they said that in June 2022, companies were looking for a co- combined 1.2 million square meters worth of lab space in Cambridge alone. In Oxford, there were over 80,000 square meters required and just 18 square meters available. So what, what are your options, Martin? Like what can startups do? Hmm. So I think in our case, we've been 
we've been very lucky in many ways in that very early on we made sure to build good relationships with the various life sciences parks to always understand what is the availability, when might a new building become available, and make sure that we that we're always prepared when something changes on the on the laboratory real estate market. However, for many companies, I think the only two things they can do is one, always start, stay, try to stay ahead of the curve by planning one to two years ahead, which especially in the very early days is extremely difficult because, of course, you're growing rapidly. So you can't move into a building which is 10 times the size of what you need. But as much as you can, try to plan ahead. And the second potential solution is to think very carefully about how much wet lab space you actually need yourself and where you can find partners who can help you with a lot of your work, be it traditional CROs or be it companies like Octoris. And what, what about, how does it look in Europe? Is it is it sort of just as bad there? To be fair, I don't know the situation in the rest of Europe as well. I know in the US, for example, we have a very similar picture in that there are waiting lists and it's very difficult to find lab space, especially in cities like Boston, which are obviously some of the centers for drug discovery worldwide. And are there, are there companies coming along to like build loads of new labs or, mm. you know, is, is the awareness not there that this investment is needed or are there other kind of things in the way? So I know that at least in, at least in the US, there are several large companies that provide lab space. I mean, there's Alexandria, there is, uh, there's the entire Lab Central group. So there are many companies out there and organizations out there, entities out there, which provide lab space. And I do believe there is quite some building activity. I believe we don't see quite the same building activity in Europe, which is which is a bit sad. But on the other hand, I think it's something that we're, we're mostly used to, that our ecosystem is not quite as mature as it is in the US. And, and I guess for the UK in particular, that, you know, claimed that the brilliant idea that was Brexit would enable them to be faster moving with some of this stuff and sort of change regulation, enable novel technologies and create new jobs. You know, where, where does the UK stand if this situation isn't sorted out speedily? Hmm. You know, also don't have... I don't have a crystal ball. And and as you know, the UK currently is a reasonably volatile place when it comes to political decision making. I'm hoping kind of that the current prime minister will last slightly longer than the previous one. In general, lack of clarity and lack of stability, overall uncertainty is something which businesses overall don't like. Because what you want to have above all is a certain security in being able to plan, being able to plan ahead. So I do very much hope that over the next over the next few few months and quarters we're going to get a bit more of that. But I think in general, the UK still is one of the best places in Europe to start a company because they do have one of the largest amounts of VC funding available in Europe. They do have a lot of biotech companies, but also top ten pharma companies, two of them in the in the country. Yet it still is the case that overall the possibilities and opportunities that you have in the US in particular are on a different scale, simply because the ecosystem is of a very different size, a very different maturity, and because you can access, can get access to a multitude of different types of investors, different types of by the companies for partnering opportunities. And there's overall, I think, still a greater appreciation for entrepreneurial endeavors compared to most European countries. Yeah, fingers crossed Rishi Sunak stays in position for 
a little bit longer, at least maybe until we have a democratic election. Thank you very much, Martin. That was super interesting. And I hope, uh, I wish you much lab space in the future. (laughs) Thanks so much. Well, that's all we have time for today. It was a jam-packed show. The whirlwind. But if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all of our coverage on sifted.eu and you can find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. And if you want to keep tabs on all the latest in climate tech in particular, please sign up for Freya's newsletter. You can find it on our website. It's called Climate Tech. It's free and it comes out once a week. You can also follow all of of the team and Sifted on Twitter. And please let us know what you think of the podcast, both the normal kinds of episodes like the one we had today and the one we had last week, the longer form interview with Carolina by DMing us on Twitter or sending an email to amy at sifted.eu and please join us next week. Bye. Bye.